This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. We're glad you're listening. Thank you for dropping in. Uh, We hope you enjoy exploring great writing with us. And I want to remind you, if you enjoy our work, please forward an episode to a friend. Obviously, it's by sharing that we all grow and build, which, as the last series on American Documents informs us, building is always the goal. Uh, Today, however, we are leaving the Americas. And we're entering the beautiful and historically rich Bohemian city of Prague, where we will meet one of its notable native sons, Franz Kafka, uh, in order to look at his famous novella, Metamorphosis. Of all the writers we've done so far, I have to admit, Kafka intimidates me the most. (laughs) It's not just because he's one of the most analyzed writers on earth, possibly after Shakespeare and the writers of the Bible, although that is a factor. (laughs) Right. But Kafka gets in people's heads in a way that is different from other writers. He creates worlds, not just books. He creates worlds. And the worlds that he creates, well, really the world that he creates, is a world that we all live in from time to time. But it's not the good one. It's the one we're terrified of to some degree. Uh, We can all find something in ourselves in the writings of Kafka, but no one wants to admit it because his world is a nightmare. Some people call it surreal, dreamlike, Tim Burton, that sort of thing. (laughs) Well, that takes us to the term that carries his name, which is Kafka-esque. Even if you haven't heard of Kafka or read his work, you may have heard or even used the term Kafka-esque, a term usually meant to express an experience that's absurd or ridiculous or nightmarish or terrible. Yeah, it does mean that. uh, But in some ways, it's a lot more than that. It embodies something that all of us who live uh, in a modern world understand. 
What Kafka tries to show in all of his works is how the modern world, the way that we live our lives, is absurd. It's frustrating. It can be cruel, but sometimes it's ridiculous so much so that if we look at it, it can be kind of funny, just like his works are. He also wants to remind us that we're partly responsible for lots of the messes that we make in this world. I remember when I was a kid in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, we were at the mall, which unlike the United States, that's a really nice place to go. Uh, and I wanted to purchase a hamburger at this little local place. So I went to the counter and asked for the hamburger. And the lady said, no, you have to go to the other cam counter on the other side of the store. And then you have to buy a ticket. And then you go get your ticket and you bring it here. So I went to the other side of the store to the cashier and I asked for a hamburger. The cashier said they didn't have hamburgers, only cheeseburgers. I asked if I could have a cheeseburger with no cheese. She said she didn't know. She's just the cashier. I'd have to ask the manager. So I had to go to the manager, wait in a third line, to ask to purchase a cheeseburger. He said I could. He wrote me a note. I took it to the cashier. I bought the cheeseburger, but then I had to go back to the first lady who made the camp to the hamburger, and then she had to go talk to the manager to make sure it was okay. This was a long time, and somehow... When I got my burger, it still had cheese. <laughs> you were in a Kafka nightmare. Yes, you know that's the idea. It's 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 modern. It's bureaucratic. It's frustrating. It's nonsensical. It can seem pointless, but it's about the way we've tried to organize our lives. But the system kind of takes control of it. I think everyone has a story like that. I remember when I left my job at the public schools to go to the private school. I decided to remain with the same public school. Uh, online teaching online classes and I when I went to fill out the application to teach online they asked for a letter of confirmation of employment from my previous employer and I told them but you are my previous employer they said that didn't matter I would have to go to the downtown office and get the letter regardless which was a six-week process <laughs> Kafka yes it was so you know <laughs> Kafka-esque is really uh, an expression of a system that is a tyranny without a tyrant (laughs) and serves no one but itself, to paraphrase the great German-American political theorist Hannah Arendt. Well, the machine is in charge, obviously, whatever that is, and the machine isn't a person. You can't fight it, really. It's frustrating. Uh, The legacy of that term Kafka-esque describes what's evolved from this unusual man and he knows how to express the frustrations and discourage and discouragements of modern life. And he does it kind of metaphorically and it's vivid and it can be horrifying. So there's so many directions we could take in exploring Kafka. And I know we'll try our best to highlight the big ones, the real scholars, the ones that really do know a lot about the works of Kafka, which isn't mean, obviously, (laughs) but they will say that, you know, reading each book is like a puzzle or like a Sudoku game. And if you read all of them, they kind of fit together to create this unified vision of the world. Uh, I haven't read all of his works, obviously. And well, even though they're not that many, you could read all of his works. He only has, you know, three uh, full length works. Most of his writings are letters, fiction, little short fictions, things like that. But Uh, I think the one that's most popularly read or the most common one is Metamorphosis. So I want to talk about that one. Well, I want to add, if you're not up for an entire novella, 
or even a short story, uh, there's one fun way to explore the ideas of Kafka. I think his aphorisms are great. Uh, if you're in a long line with nothing to do, take out your phone and Google uh, Kafka quotes or Kafka aphorisms. They're awesome, even without all the context of a story. Uh, they'll make you think for days. Here are some of my favorites. He says <laughs> things like, it's only because of their stupidity that they're able to be so sure of themselves. Don't we know everyone like that? <laughs> yes. Um, or this one. A first sign of the beginning of understanding is the wish to die. My grandmother used to say, you know you're halfway through when you feel like there's no hope. <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. that. Uh, I, I like this one too. He is terribly afraid of dying because he hasn't yet lived. But here's one of my favorites because it's so Kafka. He says, there is an infinite amount of hope in the universe, but not for us. <laughs> So awful. Here's one. By believing passionately in something that still does not exist, we create it. The non-existent is whatever we have not sufficiently desired. You could put that in a high school yearbook. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen any uh, coffee quotes in a high school I know. yearbook. Or, or you could say, I have the true feeling of myself only when I am unbearably unhappy. <laughs> That's about every creative lit magazine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, a lot of them are kind of dark like that, but not all of them. Some of them are, are just really reflective. Uh, there's 109 of them. There's a book that consists of 109 of Kafka's quotes that Max Broad published after uh, Kafka's death. But I'm getting a little bit ahead in the story. So let's go back to Kafka with this quote. The task of literature is to reconnect us with the feelings that otherwise might be unbearable to study but which desperately need our attention. I like that because I think that's what he tries to do. He said this, a book must be the axe from the frozen sea within us. I think uh, Kafka wants us to really think of himself that way. And, and at least for me, that quote, you know, the book is the axe and the your yourself is the frozen sea is a nice direction of how to read his work, not just Metamorphosis, but all of his works. The literature he wrote addresses these places in our hearts that are problematic and that are difficult to address. But like you said, they need our attention and desperately. Kafka wants to help. At least I like to see it like that. I don't know that's arguable because his works clearly have no moral and maybe I'm just committed to finding a moral in everything, even if it's not there. But I do think that his writings can actually be helpful in their own Kafka-esque way because they help navigate difficult emotions. They, like it or not, all of us do feel this, I don't know, gut-wrenching, soul-sucking feeling of alienation sometimes. We can feel powerless and claustrophobic and he articulates a lot of those feelings and he makes them into metaphors. And when you do that, and when you can have a metaphor for something, then it kind of gives you control of them. And, and the idea is maybe they can help you take control of your own narrative, conquer demons, so to speak, which sadly Kafka was never really able to do. So if that's not an introduction, I can't give one. Let me introduce <laughs> you. Drum roll. Here's <laughs> Kafka. <laughs> His world, his work, uh, and metamorphosis. Gary, what can you tell us about Kafka World? 
Oh, Kafka World is a, a very interesting place. I mean, for starters, he was born in 1883 in Prague, which at that time was the capital of the Kingdom of Bohemia and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Uh, for those of us from other parts of the world who get lost in Eastern European geography and historical landscape, he's from what today we call the Czech Republic. Uh, a country that's only existed in its current state since 1993, a relatively new country. Since the Austro-Hungarian Kingdom, it's been taken over by the Nazis who made it a part of the Sudetenland, and then the Russians who made it Czechoslovakia a part of the uh, Eastern European bloc. This part of the world is the stuff fairy tales are literally made of with... Um, beautiful landscapes and castles. I mean, the history is culturally rich, but Franz Kafka was born into it at a time when Europe was unknowingly getting ready to blow up with two world wars. And Prague was in the midst of the worst of it, especially if you were born a German-speaking Jew in a land where Germans are a minority and Jews were a minority of the minority. And anti-Semitism was not just a feeling some people had, but it was politically and culturally enforced. I and mean, every other sentiment was increasingly silenced and not allowed and eventually punished. We was in Prague for almost his entire life, which that is such an interesting place. At that time, uh, where he lived, uh, it was not a majority German population. It was It's Czech. It's Czech people. But in Prague, there was a large German-speaking population. I think I've read somewhere like 20%. But 85% of those that spoke German were actually Jews. So like every other Eastern European that I've ever met, he knew all kinds of languages. Right. <laughs> yeah, He spoke Czech. He spoke German. He spoke Yiddish. And he got pretty good at Hebrew. Well, in terms of his personal life, his father, Herman... There's a good solid German name for you. Well, uh, he was a self-made man from the interior of Bohemia who had grown up in poverty to become a well-to-do and well-married businessman in Prague, in the big city. So Franz's mother, Julia, was from an elite Jewish family, but personality-wise, she was kind of weak-willed and introverted and not really willing or able to fight for her children. And that's an important detail to bring up, especially... Herman's schmuckness, because Franz's relationship with his father is really at the heart of a lot of his writing, some more directly than others. Herman Kafka was physically large. He was a very strong man. He was accomplished. He'd made a lot of money. Of course, he'd made it out of nothing, so that's something to be proud of. But he was abusive. He was domineering and hurtful. There's one story that I can recall Kafka tells uh, in his letter to his dad, he asked his dad for a drink in the middle of the night. And his father gets up, picked him up, put him out on the balcony and left him in the cold. He just left him there. This is the kind of thing that he did all the time. He was mean. And this general idea of authority and its coldness is at the heart of a lot of what Kafka says in his writing, and he kind of translates it not just about fathers, but to all kinds of authority. And it's worth mentioning pretty early on when you know that, when you start looking for it in his writing. 
Well, what's interesting, uh, a contemporary of Kafka was Sigmund Freud. And, I mean, the psychology of Kafka is so deep. And Kafka, as a student of Freud, went to those places in his writings. But there are so many social forces that are swirling around the world at this time in Europe that also are worth mentioning. Uh, Germany, France, Denmark, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russia, they're all producing incredible bodies of thoughtful work and not just politics, but also philosophy and theology and psychology. And first, let me say, because most of us have heard of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the gentleman whose assassination sparked the beginning of World War I in 1914, he lived in a castle one hour out of Prague. And that, of course, changed the world. Uh, but Austrian psychologist Sigmund Freud, whose work was very familiar to Kafka, was also born in today what we would call the modern-day Czech Republic. Writers like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Marx and Buber, thinkers that started movements and introduced terms like existentialism and Freudian and Marxism, to name a few deep thinkers. I mean, they're changing the landscape about how people are thinking in the world and talking about the world and, as we'll see in Kafka, uh, writing about the world. And also, the impact of industrialization cannot be understated either. Europe had been industrializing for almost 100 years, and that had led to a lot of dehumanization of workers, which is common in any industrial revolution, including in the United States. And this dehumanization results in bureaucracies that are the the marker of this new non-agricultural, um, impersonal, big city, mass-produced world. I mean, let's just say Kafka is living the opposite of what Thornton Wilder creates in Grover's Corner. Uh, if you listen to our podcast about our town, and it is cold and it's unfriendly to many. Yeah, and sometimes we don't really understand what that word means to be dehumanized, but the world, when it is turning modern, it's changing not just the way society organizes itself or not how far, you know, houses are from each other, but how people understand who they are as people and what they mean to other people. This isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it works like this. You know, when I was 17, I left Brazil and I came to the U.S. I didn't know anyone here. It was a totally different world for me. And when I got here, the first thing I noticed is that people didn't talk to each other in the U.S. And I didn't see human beings walking around. Back home in my neighborhood, people were walking everywhere. They're sitting outside at bars. They're waiting in line in front of my house for a bus. In the U.S., all I saw were cars, not people, but cars going in and out of garages. And these cars would go up to ATM machines. And I never even pumped gas before, but when you go to the gas station, there's not a person. There's just a machine. Back home, every day, you go to the bakery to buy bread from the same lady. And there's a hot dog stand with a guy I know named Matu at the park across the street. And all my friends would hang out in the plaza in front of our house. The U.S. was different, and it was isolating. And it made me feel like I wasn't a human, if you want to use that word. I had trouble figuring out how to make connections in this place. And it, I felt like an outsider, even though my passport was blue like everyone else's. And that's the kind of feeling Kafka creates for us with his characters. Yes, uh, actually, that's every small town kid coming <laughs> to the big city also. Uh, and that's the effect of industrialization and modernization that lots of us experience when we move. And ironically, Kafka describes 
having never left his own home. Uh, Kafka had a hard time moving out. He went to college. He went to law school. He got a job as a lawyer. Uh, then he worked at an insurance company and all of that without leaving home. I mean, he only moved out of his dad's house when he was 31. And even then, he went home every day to eat until he was 40, like one year before he died. <laughs> I wonder if he did the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Kafka was a small guy. And remember, we talked about his dad being so large, and he was really skinny, apparently. And this contrast to his dad really made him feel bad about himself. He was also kind of shy and lonely, from what I can gather. Although he does seem like one of those people that once you get to know him is a lot of fun. And his friends, when you read what they say about him, his work colleagues, even his bosses, they all say really nice things about him. I think of him as one of those guys that uh, has the ability to make close friends. And when he does, these friendships are kind of there for a lifetime. One of his best friends, and I think this guy is great. I can't imagine having a person like Max Broad in my life. Max Broad... Uh, was a friend of Kafka's, and he was actually a little bit famous, or at least well-known when they met. But he saw the best in Franz, and he saw that Franz had a contribution to make to the world and really encouraged him to write. And then, after he did, Max had the connections to get Kafka's work published. Another fun thing that Max did that I think is really friendly, fun thing for a friend to do is he got Franz out of Prague. They went to Switzerland together in Italy and Paris. So fun. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> and uh, I want to point out Max also introduced Franz to one of the women he would be engaged to twice. Well, I the love life. Uh, Kafka, well, he's not as bad as Percy Shelley when it comes to women, but He's a little bad. Uh, he was, well, let me just say, he's the worst. He's the bad boyfriend. Of, and there might be some reasons for that. I don't know. There's speculation that he had some inner demons. But regardless, his track record, track record with women leaves something to be desired. <laughs> uh, true. And uh, poor Felice Bauer bore the brunt of it. I mean, the amount of correspondence between these two is incredible. They have like over 500 letters and cards. And he wooed her and doted on her in the mail. But as soon as the relationship got physical, he pulled back. She would try to win him, but eventually she'd let it go. And then he'd go back to writing and woo her all over again. After he finally asked her to marry him, he literally wrote in his diary that he felt like a chained convict. That doesn't sound romantic to doesn't me. Doesn't sound encouraging <laughs> to the relationship. And I'm glad they broke up for her sake. But apparently, uh, this engagement or his relationship was very productive for his writing. He wrote the judgment in a single night, two days after writing a letter to Felice for the first time. I don't know if there was a connection. It might just be a coincidence. But he dedicated it to her, which I think is fun. This was his breakout work. And at least she got a little bit of immortality out of the relationship. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the judgment got published, and it did get him noticed as a writer and Kafka, just to say, always thought it was his best work. He described it as a great fire, and it was autobiographical, and it said everything that he wanted to say in the world in this one little story, although it, it's kind of an awful story. It's about a father, a terrible man, whose son announces that he's going to get married, and his father sentences him to death. 
So, whatever reason for, the son goes and drowns himself. There you go. (laughs) Have we ever made the point on this podcast that we do the history of writers because they write out of personal experience? I mean, it's clear, especially with this guy. (laughs) He doesn't disguise it at all. No, he doesn't. Uh, It wasn't long after that that he writes The Metamorphosis. And I do want to talk about that, but back to untrue love, because I don't know that he had true love. (laughs) Two years later, he's going to break off the engagement again. And then when he does, lo and behold, another masterpiece, The Trial, which is the very popular full-length novel that is the most famous after Metamorphosis. And it's actually really interesting, but it's dark and I would say too much for most people. It's got a lot of, I don't know, sexual stuff in there, and it's just dark. But in the book, the main character, Joseph K., wakes up to find out that he's been arrested for an unspecified crime that he never knows about for the end of the book. And then the end, he's got this strange execution again. Anyway, uh We've gotten to the place where we usually just step into the book and we quit talking about the author's life. But in Kafka's case, like you mentioned, his life and his work are so intertwined. I do think it's worth finishing out his biography. He talks about, like, his books are about angst, I think, and kind of sorting out angst. And that's what you see his life is about, rightly or wrongly. Uh, psychologists have a lot to analyze with Kafka if they want to unpack his life. I mean, there is no doubt so much of his resentment and frustration is really centered around his relationship with his father, who appears to have been really cruel to him. One of his landmark pieces of writing, which, by the way, he writes after breaking off yet another engagement. <laughs> I told you he's a bad boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um there was a girl named Julie Warzek who his father didn't like because she was from a poor family. Anyway, he writes his father a 47-page letter when he really releases a lot of anger in it about his treatment as a child. Let me child. point out, he writes it. This is not a computerized email where he just goes... It's handwritten. I would also like to point out, it's not a person-to-person conversation. No, it's <laughs> that's, not. It's significant. He describes in his letter details of abuse that would really make anyone ashamed. And However, he doesn't give the letter to his father. Instead, he gives it to his mother and tells her to give it to him. You that know, would not be good. No, we, especially when she's kind of weak-willed to begin with. She <laughs> doesn't want to get in the middle of this. Anyway, uh, she does not deliver the letter. She reads it, returns it, and basically said his father didn't need the stress of reading Franz's letter. So Kafka never attempts to deliver it himself, but the letter is a part of his body of work. So there's also the idea that he only wrote three full-length novels, but never finished any of them. He wrote extensively about hating his job at the insurance company, but he never tried to change jobs. He had several relationships with women, and women did seem to really like him, but he didn't seem to enjoy their relationships all that much. He broke off a total of three engagements. And the last girl he tried to marry right before his death was 20 years younger than he was, and an Orthodox Jew who he moved in with, and her father refused to allow the marriage. I mean, this is six months before his death of tuberculosis, which had plagued him for seven years before he died. And at the end of his life, he moved to a sanatorium because it was too much for his parents to care for him. So he wrote, instead of spoke his last words, 
And I assume because of tuberculosis left his throat in unbearable pain, he wrote to Dr. Klopstock, kill me or you are a murderer. Oh, my. So there is a lot to unpack for those who like to do things like that. What I find amazing and even admirable is he would have been long forgotten, just like the millions of Eastern European Jews whose lives are getting ready to be cut off if it weren't for his friend. I want to get back to Max Broad. Um, Just so you know, all three of Kafka's sisters lost their lives in Nazi death camps. And he would have, too, had it not been for tuberculosis. But Max Broad made Kafka. He saw and believed in his greatness, and he made it happen. He preserved it. Uh, One point of irony, Kafka gave all of his works to Broad before he died, and he told him to destroy them. But Max didn't because he said... You know, if he wanted me to destroy these works, he wouldn't have given to me. But so Broad kind of became the founder of Kafka's fame. He published more than 100 articles, epilogues, reviews, and four books. He dramatized the novel America. He finished and edited those novels because they were all unfinished. He wrote a book that was translated into English called the Franz Kafka Biography. So Kafka was able to survive the purge of the Nazis because of his friend, and then was able to be discovered by French existentialists, which really got him, and then his legacy went from there. It took a life of his own, as they say. <laughs> All right. Well, that seems uh, like we covered that pretty well. Shall we start with metamorphosis? Let's do it. I do have a couple more disclaimers, though. Like I said, Kafka invites so many different interpretations, and I don't really know how to do them all justice. So I tend to favor the existential perspective when we look at the book. And so I am going to do that. And I'm just going to tell you that's kind of how we're going to look at it. Next week, we're going to talk about what existential is, existentialism is kind of as a worldview. So we can have something of a framework of how to get something practical out of the book. Another popular way though to look at the story is psychologically. And we'll try to touch on that a little bit. Kafka made so much of a point to try to make sure people understood that his stories and characters are not psychological stories, studies. So, you know, that goes without saying. But uh, I don't know how you can without discussing family dynamics to some degree, because that is a central part of what this story is going to be about. The story itself is divided into three parts, and we're going to talk about each of these three parts separately. So hopefully this will be an organized way to to talk about this book that is difficult to describe and kind of get your brain around. Like I said, it could be, you can talk about this book forever. All right. Sounds like your disclaimer has been made. (laughs) Shall we talk about the title, The Metamorphosis? Yes. And let me say one more thing. I forgot to mention. I know this book is written in German. So when we read it, we're reading an English translation of it. I assume if you're listening to this, you're reading an English translation. And when you do that, you know, as anyone knows who's read something that's been translated, you lose something from the meaning of the original, which we're not going to try to go there extensively. But there are a few things to point out. Apparently, when this book was written in German, it was actually written in a very complex style, which I don't know German. So I can't speak to this directly. And I really can't you know, pronounce these names, but the title, 
die Wren Wren Long, so <laughs> not, something like that. Not even close. <laughs> I know. Well, it means the change, the transformation. You know, it, it means the metamorphosis. And what it captures, I think, more than anything, is the abrupt and harshness of this turn of events that's going to be described in the first line. So, Gary, the first line is pretty famous, and it's startling and... Well, it's worth just reading out. Give well, it a go. Before I read it, what do you always like to say about the first line of a book? He gives it away. He gives it and away. He does here, too. He's going to give the, the theme away, the story away in the first line. And here's the first line. When Gregor Samso woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, there's a lot to say. Because uh, like, like we pointed out, he is giving away a lot of the story in the first line. First, let's look at the tone. It's so deadpan. And that's how this whole book is going to be the whole way through. And that's actually, you know, Kafka's writing style. He works in an office. He works in bureaucracy. And he writes like this. Uh, he's talking about an absurd thing. And and yet he's going to say it in the same way if he were writing a bureaucratic report about the number of eggs being delivered to a specific Kroger on a specific street in, you know, Tallahassee, Florida or something. It's not emotional. There's nothing to be upset about. He just found himself. <laughs> Turned into a bug. <laughs> yes, he found himself changed. The second thing to note is his name. Now, some critics have noted that Kafka, Samsa, it's kind of a cryptogram or something like that. And, and and he's trying to say that it's about him. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. I think it's more interesting, and this is a more interesting parallel to me, is that in the Czech language, the word for alone is Sam, and the word for I am is spelled J-S-E-M. So like Samson, which to me... That is what the story is about. I am alone. Well, then we get into the idea of dreams. And that was a Freudian idea that Kafka was very interested in because Freud had produced his groundbreaking work on the interpretation of dreams by 1900. And Freud says that dreams are the pictorial language that speech once was. Literally, the metaphors hidden in speech and the dreams are a manifestation of deep psychological forces the dreamer is wrestling with. It all goes together very well. Right. And I think we see that idea here. Uh, this is where all of Kafka's stories, they do have this dreamlike feeling to it. I mean, isn't it a dreamlike feeling if you wake up and you're a bug? Uh, but in a sense, this vermin is a metaphor maybe for something at a really different level that any reader can ultimately identify with and, and put themselves into the story. So there is that. Uh, maybe you you feel like a bug. But Kafka wants to make it clear that in this story, this is not a dream. This isn't a dream. Uh, he is actually a bug. And what happens in the story actually happens. He's going to wake up and, oh, uh, he's a bug, a vermin. <laughs> Ha-ha. <laughs> hmm. uh, and that's what makes it terrifying. I mean, imagine waking up to be a vermin or, you know, an unidentified 
life-size bug that would terrorize most people. Oh my gosh. That reminds me of a passage in that other book, The Trial, that I told you about. Uh, in that book, uh, the character also wakes up and he wakes up and he's getting arrested. And in that book, it says that waking up is the riskiest moment of the day. I think that's kind of a funny thought. That's a very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes on to explain that, you know, you wake up, you're kind of in this vulnerable place. You can't defend yourself from the onslaught of whatever might come. But how you can defend yourself at that original moment, the character says, once that was well over without deflecting you from your orbit, you could take heart of grace for the rest of the day. So, you know, if you can get past waking up, it's all downhill. <laughs> I feel that really, actually, every morning if my alarm goes off at 530 and it's uh, time for work. Yes, yeah. there's a reason for that. Um, but yet he, he isn't going to describe what these dreams were about ever. Uh, and although we're going to find out before the end of the first page that he hates his job, but he's totally obsessed with it. I mean, he's a traveling salesman, but hates the torture of traveling, worrying about changing trains, eating miserable food at all hours and constantly seeing new faces and no relationships that last or get more intimate. I mean, to the devil with it all. Is that what this is all about? To the devil with it is his comment on all that <laughs> alienation. Yes, and, and maybe that is one interpretation. Uh, many have said that turning into a bug is the ultimate screw it. I'm done. It's an act of rebellion to your whole world. Uh, not doing this anymore. Your family, your employer, anybody who you feel like is making you live this life that you don't want to live, I'm done with it. And so I'm going to change myself into a bug. But that takes us to the last part of the sentence. He's a monstrous vermin. Now, this takes us back to the German because lots of people want to talk about this expression. And all of them understand German, and I don't. So I'm going to have to paraphrase what I've understood other people to say. But the phrase in German is, Unger Herren Ung, uh, Ungezeifer. I am so <laughs> bad at don't German. Even try. I'm sorry. Uh, but anyway, uh, it doesn't have a literal English translation. But what it does have is a, a prefix that we do have in English that I can't understand. Un. Okay, so when it says Ungerzeifer. So I can, un, I can see the un, and that's a negative prefix. And we have this in English too. Like if I say you're unfit, that means that you're not fit. If you're unkind, you're not kind. So it's the opposite thing like that. And so we see that here. So it's like a double negative because he's using it twice. The word Ungern means monstrous, colossal, massive, incredible, that sort of thing. But when you put it with Ungerzeifer, that's different. And you're adding a complexity. It's very big. It's very negative. And that word Gezeifer which I know I'm not pronouncing it properly, so please forgive me for all that. But it comes from this high German word that's deep in its original roots, and it comes from this idea of the, the Zypher is like this animal meant for sacrifice. So what we are seeing here is he woke up, and he's unclean. He's unfit for sacrifice. He's a nasty, gigantic thing that's not even worthy to be sacrificed anymore. So it's not even, you're not worthy to have, you're not even worthy to be sacrificed. You're repulsive, unfit to be seen. And so we have to wonder, is that how he already saw himself? And is this just kind of this physical transformation 
of something that he already thought he was or something that he actually was. And now we're just making it to where everyone can see what they've already made him to be. I know that can twist your brain around if you <laughs> well, think about it like yeah. that. And, and if you felt like you were perceived in this way, why wouldn't you just be a bug? Um, I mean, in a sense to say, well, if you think I am, thus I am. Right. And this takes us to this big idea that's going to dominate the entire book. And that's this concept of isolation. What is it if you're isolated? What does it feel like? What do we do with it? Can we escape it? Do we want to escape it? If you're the bug or if you've been made a bug or if you've made yourself a bug, look at Gregor. At this point, he's alien from his own body. He's not even his in his physical body anymore. He's alienated from his family. And he's actually even alienated from the human species. This is isolation. It is. And, and this is where we see Kafka talking to philosophers and thinkers of his day through his stories. I mean, uh, Martin Buber, a Jewish theologian, uh, remember Kafka is Jewish. He published a book a bit late in 1923, but we can assume his ideas were not unheard of. But Buber's idea is that human life only finds its meaningfulness in relationships. And uh, this idea is being tested by being a bug. Uh, one that is unclean and unfit to be in a relationship with other people. And so let's go back. And if you read the first sentence, you can see, uh, you know, how much meaning that it actually has. When Gregor Samsa, that means I am alone and Czech, woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed, metamorphosed, whatever, transformed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. Uh, so, should we go on from there? Let's Sentence go on from two. <laughs> Let's see if it gets any more encouraging. Okay. okay. He was lying on his back as hard as armor plate, and when he lifted his head a little, he saw his vaulted brown belly sectioned by arch-shaped ribs, to whose dome the cover, about to slide off completely, could barely cling. His many legs pitifully thin compared with the size of the rest of them, were waving helplessly before his eyes. What's happened to me, he thought. It was no dream. His room, a regular human room, only a little on the small side, lay quiet between the four familiar walls. Over the table, on which an unpacked line of fabric samples was all spread out, Samso was a traveling salesman, hung the picture which he had recently cut out of a glossy magazine and lodged in a pretty gilt frame. It showed a lady done up in a fur hat and a fur boa, sitting upright and raising up against the viewer a heavy fur muff in which her whole forearm had disappeared. Gregor's eyes then turned to the window and the overcast weather. He could hear raindrops hitting against the metal window ledge completely depressed him. How about going back to sleep for a few moments and forgetting all this nonsense, he thought. But that was completely impracticable, since he was used to sleeping on his right side and in his present state could not get into that position. No matter how hard he threw himself onto his right side, he always rocked back onto his back again. He must have tried it a hundred times, closing his eyes so as not to have to see his squirming legs and stopped only when he began to feel a slight dull pain in his side, which he had never felt before. 
Oh God, he thought, what a grueling job I picked. Day in, day out, on the road, the upset of doing business is much worse than the actual business in the home office. And besides, I've got the torture of traveling, worrying about changing trains, eating miserable food at all hours, constantly seeing new faces, no relationships that last or get more intimate, to the devil with it all. He felt a slight itching up on top of his belly, shoved himself slowly on his back closer to the bedpost so as to be able to lift his head better, found the itchy spot, studied it with small white dots, which he had no idea what to make of, and wanted to touch the spot with one of his legs, but immediately pulled it back for the contact sent a cold shiver through him. Well, there's a lot to say, but first let's just look at the setting. This entire book is going to consist mostly of being in this one room. He does get into the living space of the rest of the house briefly, but then the family uh, puts him back in. He's going. To, the family will leave the apartment at the end, but for the most part, we're in this one room. And so what we're going to see Kafka developing over the course of this book is we as readers are going to feel a real sense of claustrophobia. The walls are coming in. The bed is in there. I can't get out of it. I can't get out of the bed. Then I'm not going to be able to get out of the room. And this is how most of the world felt. Uh, I feel like we can understand it a little bit because a lot of us have felt claustrophobic if you've been in any kind of quarantine situation. But then it's like more of that, right. a lot more of that. Uh, I do want to, this just a little fun fact. One critic I read noted that Gregor's room in this book is an exact duplicate of his actual room at his parents' house mm-hmm. when he was writing the book. So in a different work, Kafka says about living in this house, when I lay on the sofa, the loud talking in the room on either side of me by the women on the left and the men on the right gave me the impression that they were coarse, savage beings who could not be appeased and who did not know what they are saying. So we're trapped in here like that with you know all the parameters of being trapped in this room with Gregor and uh we're not getting out and we're not going to view the world except through this perspective of Gregor now that's another thing to point out this isn't in a first it's not Gregor telling the story you don't see I am this I am that it's in the third person but we're looking at it through the bug eyes for sure and we also see a lot of Gregor's thoughts coming through. And we're only going to see his thoughts. We're not going to see the thoughts of anybody else. And so because of that, we're going to find ourselves sympathizing him, if you want to think about it that way, at least looking at the world or pitying him all the way to the end. We are the bug in a sense. But then again, I kind of find myself judging the bug. (laughs) (laughs) Did you use the phrase bug eye point Ah! of view? (laughs) Which bug's eye, I wonder. um, Well, let me say this, too, about the setting and how Kafka has trapped us in it. If any of us woke up like a bug, the first thing we do is, why am I a bug? How can I change back? Kafka never gives that opportunity. He sticks you there, and he sticks you in the room and in the situation. And, and he doesn't tell you why. Nobody ever problem solves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, he reminds us that it was no dream. We aren't imagining this. This is real. We get a look around the room. We'll see a small table, some fabric samples for his work. Um, this picture of a lady in a fur hat and a fur boa that he cut out of a magazine and framed. And there's a window, and the weather is gloomy. 
But what caught my attention is that he's not alarmed that he's a bug. He's accepting it. Exactly. His thoughts don't even go there. He's worried about getting back to sleep. And then he's going to worry about the logistics of getting out of bed. And he's a bug, but he's not freaked out about it all at all. Although his squirming legs do gross him out a bit. You notice that a couple <laughs> yes. of times. And we're going to see, you know, in some sense, some people say that Kafkaesque worlds can be funny. And this is what's kind of funny. It's ridiculous. This is a little bit of slapstick comedy, so to speak, because it gets absurd. He's awkwardly in this body. He's, you know, trying to scratch and do all these weird things. And yet he doesn't even act like this is unusual or abnormal or something to be freaked out about. And this makes me frustrated with him. <laughs> I find myself frustrated with Gregor because I want to say there are serious things wrong here and we're not talking about them. I don't want to blow them off and we don't need to pretend that, that they don't exist. You know, his passivity, I find annoying. Well, of course... Those are all the psychological webs that Kafka is weaving into this short narrative. You're already caught up in it. I mean, are we bugs in our own lives? If we were, what would we what would we like being a bug? And in what sense would it be a relief? And would we feel like, oh, we're not responsible anymore? And I mean, and at what cost would it come? And would we like it? Would we be willing to live like that? What would we do? I mean. To what degree would we be like Gregor? And if we were, what would the outcome of that be? That's part of the web he's got us in, too. And I would always like to say, I would never be like that. You would hope not, anyway. <laughs> but And that's kind of why I like to look at this book through existential eyes, uh, even though I know it can be very tiring. And it makes me tired reading about him trying to get out of bed over a page and a half, <laughs> and he's not addressing it. And he's his brain goes... Talking about his job, really? You're talking about how grueling your job is? You're a bug. And that's what he wants to talk about. And he's going to you know, complain about it, the upset of doing business and taking trains, the torture of that. That's really what we need to be addressing after you've had this moment in your life. But anyway, it's exhausting. Well, I agree with you. I think being a bug <laughs> would be far worse than all those other uh, problems he had with his work. So, well... Uh, in this case, maybe it's time for a break. Let's stop here with our existentialism, and we'll introduce more of that next week, and we'll tackle a, uh, this intro and look at part one and two of this Kafkaesque novella, The Metamorphosis. So, thanks for being with us today. Remember, if you enjoy our work, please share our podcast with a friend or a colleague. Uh, don't forget to scroll down to the bottom of your podcast app and give us a five-star rating. When you share, we grow. Thank you all for that. Thank you, and peace out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.